Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. If you would, turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I didn't tell Mike my text, and if you notice, it's not in your bulletin. But, as the Lord often does, He confirms um, His Word, right? In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And so it's interesting that um, the word this morning from our Sunday school class was, um, let us provoke or stir one another up to love and good works, right? So there's this considering of how to motivate each other for love and for good works. So, thinking through, I was, before I read the text, just thinking through as Mike's transitioning, as we transition as a body of believers from a year past to a new year, there's this sense of reflection. And there's also this sense of, of what needs to change? What things do I need to change in my life that ultimately bring glory to God and is for the good, not only for me, but for all those that I influence. So just thinking through that as we read this text. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'm just going to read verses 3 through 12. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. As is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. For which you are suffering, since indeed God considereth just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Who is sufficient for these things? Father, this is your word. Spirit, 
empowered, spirit-breathed. It's your book. It's your word. It's not the thoughts of men. But it's your truth. And this truth will last forever. And you have imparted it to us. You've given it to us. That we might know you. And that we might proclaim you. So that others may know you. Father we confess our helplessness. Our helplessness in b- to be able to communicate. And our helplessness to understand. Both need your grace and your spirit working in our hearts so that we may do what needs to be done. That we might speak oracles of you in your strength and that we might understand so that we might apply it to our lives and you receive glory. So we cast all this upon you Asking for your enablement. Will you help us now for the sake of your name, Lord Jesus? Amen. My intention is to walk through verses 11 and 12. That's the prayer of Paul. And it's to help us to try to gravitate towards that thinking of resolving every resolve for good and every work of faith. But Paul has framework in mind in this context of what he says when he says in the start of verse 11, to this end we pray. So there's a purpose in his prayer to us, but there's thoughts that kind of frame what the prayer is about. And so we have to understand as we back up from verses 3 through 10, kind of the framework that is set for us in this resolving for good and these works of faith. And so we're going to walk through this. Just a little bit of background about the church of Thessalonica. Uh, Paul gets run out of Philippi, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 16. That's the Macedonian jailer, right? The the shaking of that jail. The the jailer comes to know. uh, Lydia comes to faith. And then the people come and to release him. But he says, is it right to treat Roman citizens as you have? You come and release us. And they talk to them face to face. And they went out of town. And so they go into Thessalonica, uh, which is Asia Minor, is modern-day Turkey. And so they go into this place, and they stay three weeks, right? Paul's, you can read about it in Acts chapter 17, three weeks, three Sabbath days, he goes into the synagogue, and he's preaching Christ. And it says that many Jews come to faith, and also Greek uh, men, and also devout uh, women. So leading ladies have come to to faith as well. It doesn't take long for persecution to show up there as well. And he's run out of town there. Uh, And we think that his letter to Thessalonians is coming from Paul sends Timothy back from Corinth to check on the church. Now you think about this. This is a church that's only been in its conception, right? It's only come to know the Lord in three weeks, right? There's, There's infancy, right, in this understanding. But nonetheless, they respond by believing God's word. You can read, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and look at Paul's praise of them 
how they respond to this gospel in the midst of adversity. Um, Look at verse 2. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And you know what kind of move men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. So that you became example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Right? This, this word came to you in a, in, a, in a context of trouble, of conflict, of adversity. And how do we know that it is God who's worked out these things in you, that he's chose you to this? Is because you responded in faith into this word, and you responded in joy in the midst of this suffering. Now, you have to understand that suffering uh, seems very foreign to our Western mindsets, but not so in the New Testament. Suffering is a theme that runs all the way through the scriptures and it says that through much adversity through much trials we shall enter into the kingdom of God and so suffering is not so much a thing it's really an anomaly to us that we are not experiencing the suffering and affliction and persecution that our brothers and sisters in Christ along this world and our brothers and sisters in Christ experienced in the New Testament times it's kind of foreign to us but it should not be it should be a reality and Sometimes I think that our comfort and our security has blinded our eyes to see. Sometimes we think if it's hard, God must not be in it. But that's not really true. Sometimes we need to be thinking if it's not hard, God might not be in it. Uh, we, we, think, we seem to think that because something is difficult or something is conflicts or, or afflictions are, are happening because of this word, then it's a result of God not blessing us. But that's not true. In the very context of what we're reading here, it's saying that God is in the midst of you because you are responding in trust and faith and obedience in the middle of this conflict, in the middle of this affliction and adversity. The reality of your faith doesn't say that suffering purifies your faith, but suffering does reveal the character and the type of your faith. It searches it, what you truly believe. And he says that these Thessalonians are responding that way. So Paul's thankful. Back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see this church has responded in faith in this. So he sent Timothy back. He gets a report of them. There's some misconceptions, as you would probably understand, in an infancy church, right? There needs to be some development there needs to be some growth in this, so he sends Timothy back to check on them to make sure they're okay. And then not too later, after that, the second Thessalonians was written again. Uh, this theme of the return of the Lord is in both of these books. But if you turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he's praising God, right? He always gives thanks to God, which is right. It's fitting to give thanks to God. For what? That your faith is growing abundantly and that your love is increasing. So I want you to think about this, that faith, trust in God is growing, maturity is happening, 
and love is increasing. And these two run on parallel tracks, right? Parallel tracks of your trust in God and love for others run on parallel tracks. One of the more we trust God, the more we'll love other people because it manifests that way. And so the proper, the proper way to express them seeing that happen in them is that it's signs of grace. It is signs of God growing and maturing their faith and love is happening in it. Notice that it's in the middle of persecution. That's what it says in verse 4. Therefore we boast, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the inflictions that you're enduring. So what keeps them enduring? Their trust in God and their love for one another. Love for one another and trust in God produces an endurance in them. It keeps them settled, permanent, firm. They're not moved away from the gospel. They're actually growing deeper into it. And whatever we're thankful for is really what we esteem as valuable. Whatever you thank God for. So what comes to your mind when you start running down a list of things that you are thankful for? Whatever those things are, whatever's at the top of your list of your thankfulness to God, that's what you value the most. Paul's values the most is their trust and their love and their endurance. And it should be the same in ours, right? We should have the same values as the Scripture would frame for us. So what does that mean? So I want you to think about your growing and maturing in faith and that your love's increasing so that you will not quit. That's, that's the point, that you don't stop, that you keep growing in your pursuit of trusting God and you're increasing in the love of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I say to all of us, it's some, some in depth of our hearts, some, some uh, evaluation of us that we would say, I need to increase my trust of God. It shows up in my life. I don't believe Him in certain areas. And there are some people who are extremely irritating to me that I have a hard time loving, right? We would, if we were going to be honest with one another, we would say that, right? Some people are easier to love than others. And so we thinking about entering to a new year, you were thinking about what areas of my life am I not trusting the Lord and what areas of my life are there people that God has placed in my life that I'm having a hard time loving? Because they're sovereignly put there. You understand that, right? There's nothing outside of your life that God hasn't put there. The people that you have the privilege of seeing, <laughs> I say that privilege, right? You see them because God has placed them in you that you would love them. It's easy to love those who love you, right? Even the Pharisees and Gentiles do that, right? You love those who are hard to love. And how do we go about doing that? So there's some framework about how to start setting resolves for, for good, right? Is that a resolve for good? Absolutely. Trust in God and love for people are two things that we should be on our list to be growing in in 2019 as a church and as personally 
in our lives, right? So there's that. And so there's this enduring factor that we stick to it. Um, and we'll see what keeps us focused to pursue endurance. That's a good question, right? What framework needs to happen in us if we're going to continue to pursue? What keeps these believers in this epistle grounded? What thoughts does Paul present to say, this is how you keep enduring? It, in this passage, it's God is judge. Now, this is hard. This is things that we don't normally talk about, right? This everlasting punishment of those who do not know God and flaming vengeance. If you have this uh, picture of Jesus or picture of God as a benevolent grandfather who's going to set you on his knee and tell you that it's going to be okay, that's not the picture that is painted for us in the New Testament or Old Testament scriptures. God is fearful. He's holy. He's just. And so he's framing this endurance by this recognition that it is God's judgment. God is just. God is just how? Well, let's read. This is evidence. What is evidence? What is this evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What is it? It's that their steadfastness and faith is enduring in their afflictions. How is this evidence of the judgment of God? How does your steadfastness and hope and endurance in the middle of afflictions and persecutions say God's just? That's a great question, right? I mean, because that's what he says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What's proof? What is the proof that God is just? That you might be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. For it has been granted unto you not only, for the, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for the sake of his name, he'll write in Philippians. It is a gift to you. You remember the New Testament church in Acts chapter 4 when they're persecuted? How do, they, how do they respond after that? They rejoice. Why? Because they said they consider themselves, God considered them worthy to suffer for this kingdom. Worthy to suffer for his name. So he's saying that God's judgment of them is, is right because they are suffering in the midst of this. And they are pursuing this. But notice also he says... So it says, for which you are also suffered, verse 6, since indeed God consider it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, does he tell them to afflict themselves? No. Does he tell them to go afflict others that are afflicting them? No. Does he say it's wrong to pray for relief? No. But he says that God is just. And what that means is, is that God sees it all. And nobody is getting away with anything. That's good news. It's good news because the world, and you know this, even little small kids know when things are not right. There's this sense in all of us that says, this is not fair, this is not right, this is this something wrong. Well, that understanding is given to us by God. We have a faulty interpretation of that because we usually see things fairness as it benefits us. But God is just, and there is nothing 
that is going to slip by him, he sees it all. And he is saying that his affliction will afflict those who are afflicting you. There will be relief for you, that's verse 7, and grant relief to you who are afflicted as to us as well. So he identifies this Thessalonian believers, these Thessalonians, he's, he's grouping them with who? Himself, as an apostle. He says, there's going to be relief for you, and there's going to be relief for us. Why? Because Paul's enduring persecutions and hardships just like they are. And he's saying that they are going to have relief when? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Relief will come. This is not the end all. There's coming a time when every right will, every wrong will be made right. There is coming a time, there is a point when this will end. It will stop. And when it stops, those who are afflicting you will be afflicted. It will not be you who, in, who, in, who make this judgment. It is God's judgment towards them, and His judgment will be just. And how will this judgment go forward? It comes in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey His gospel. Notice that those are synonymous terms. Knowing God also means obeying His gospel. And in essence, what is happening to these people who are inflicting those who are the people of God is that they have rejected God, they do not know God, and they refuse to submit and obey His gospel. And in essence, it's just what C.S. Lewis said when he says there is two types of people in this world. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those who God says to you, your will be done. And what he means in that is that those who humble in submission to God submit themselves unto God and they are underneath the lordship of Jesus. And there are those who say, I will refuse to obey God. I will be the God of my own life and I will do whatever I want to. And God says, okay. You can have it. And the worst thing, the, wor the absolute worst thing that God could give a fallen humanity is what they think they want. Because they don't want God. But God is the source of all life and beauty and joy. God is the source of love and light. And they refuse to submit to Him. And so what happens to them? Eternal, look what happens, verse 9. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction. Why? Because God's face turns away. All God does to deliver his wrath is remove his presence. What's left? What's left when God turns his face away? But wrath. Wrath happens to them. And before you think how harsh of a God, how mean of a vengeful God who does such. May I remind you of the Lord Jesus Christ? May I remind you of the Son of God who was in all His splendor and glory, who hung on a Roman crucifix in the darkness of three hours and screams in the face of a God who is turning His back on Him, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This judgment that is deserving for us was suffered by the Son of God. He is the one who turned His face towards God and the Father turned away. 
Before you start estimating who this God is, remember His Son and the cost of the judgment. Grace means nothing to us unless we understand the judgment and justice of God. He is holy, and He will make every wrong right. And His Son is the means of grace by which you and I are not in these lot of those who suffer punishment of eternal damnation. You and I are only benefits of the grace of God that we don't, this God doesn't inflict this harm and judgment upon us. He saved us from wrath. Rejoice, believer, that if you're enduring hell today, let me tell you something, it's only temporary. Let me tell you, church of Thessalonica, if you're enduring suffering and persecutions and afflictions, there's coming a day when relief will come when the Son reveals Himself with glory. And look what it says, verse 10. When He comes on that day, it's in one moment, He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all those who believe marvel that do you marvel at Jesus are you in awe of him does, does heaven does heaven sound like gold streets comfort and luxury or does heaven to you sound like Jesus Christ Why would you want to go to heaven if you don't love Jesus? Because that's going to be what we're all gazing at, marveling, exceeding our expectations, rocked, transformed. From His fullness we have received grace upon grace, marveling, Glory, seeing it, no longer talking about this glory and pictures and glimpses and foretaste of it, but manifested, unfiltered presence of God. And we who believed, well, considering that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Glory is waiting on you. So, help me here. That is what is in his mind as he's setting good resolves in works of faith. So there is an internal perspective. You know why some resolutions don't last? Because they're impulsive. They're not, they're not thinking in light of eternity. Uh, I read this one article that says uh, successful habits of uh, successful people, right? Or habits of successful people. And one of those, one of those things was the 10-10-10, right? So they think about, about this decision. How will I feel 10 minutes after this decision? How will I feel 10 months about this decision? How will I feel 10 years about this decision? And I think many of us would say, if I thought more about some of the decisions that I've made in my past, I probably wouldn't have made that decision. 
So I think there's some, there's some truth, there's some wisdom in trying to evaluate some things before we make some impulsive decisions. But decisions of resolutions for good and for love and for endurance need to be made in light of eternal perspective. How would this affect eternity? Do you make decisions, when you, when you look at what's the direction of which we want to go in, personally, collectively, family, all of those things, do you look in light of an eternity? Or is it just 2019? We're just looking at 2019? Or are we looking at how this will ripple throughout eternity? I think it will help us some resolves for good will help us if we make them with an eternal perspective in mind. Not temporal. And so some of those things that you're trying to evaluate on whether you should make resolutions or not, will there be in eternity? Yes. Will these things that I am pursuing be in eternity? Does it matter what kind of diet I eat in 2019? Is that an eternal perspective? Well, it depends, right? Does it matter if I get fit and healthy in 2019? Does that ripple over into eternity? You get my point. There's some things that we invest a lot of time, a lot of effort into that just is not going to last. It's not going to make a difference. So help. Help us, Lord. Give us, teach us to number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom, so that we just don't get good at doing good things, but we set our affections and our efforts towards eternal, great things. eternal perspective verse 11 to this end we always pray for you this is the purpose for which my prayer is for you this is the goal and notice that this prayer is to God so this good resolve and these works of faith are asking God to do something with them don't lose sight of that now. We're asking God to involve himself with these good intentions, good resolutions, good ambitions, right? We're asking him to be involved in that and this work of faith. God, fulfill it. You and I, listen to me, the reason some resolutions do not last is because we do not seek God's power and enablement to do it. We seek our own strength. And the reason we start to fizzle is because we stop relying upon this and we don't grow in our trust in God and we don't grow in our love for others is because we try to pursue it without faith. Without prayerful dependence that God would fulfill it in us. I'm trying to help you and I'm trying to help me here. This is what I'm purposing to do right now is to help both you and I 
approach this next coming year with helpful ways on how to go about doing this. How this good resolve, where do these good resolves come from? Well, I think they come from spirit enablement, right? The spirit puts desires in us for good. He enables us to do that, right? For it is God, that's Second Philippians 2, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So he puts the desire and the ability in your heart. It's God working in you that does those things. God's putting those desires in you. You think of, you think of, you think of William Carey who says, expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. Who puts that ambition in William Carey? I think it's the same one who put it in Paul's heart in Romans 15, 20. He says, my ambition is to preach Christ where he's not known. Who puts this desire in Paul's heart? It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit enables us with these good resolves. But nonetheless, it is your resolve. What that means is, is that it is right to plan. It is right to pursue. God is not stepping over your will. He is working in coordinates with it. So it's not a passive attempt. It is a full, intentional pursuit. We will not grow in our faith, and we will not grow in these good resolves and in these works of faith without an intentionality to it. Put your hand to the plow. Work. Let me say this. Work out your own salvation. That doesn't mean it says God's working in you, but it doesn't say God does all the work and you don't do anything. Now, let me be clear here. It is God who does the enablement to do it, but nonetheless, it's not superseding over your will. You say, this sounds very confusing. Well, let me tell you something. Sometimes God is mysterious, and there's not things that we can fully comprehend. His sovereignty and your responsibility are running on parallel tracks. They're running down the same way. Your will is engaged and God's will is engaged and they're going the same way. And he's not doing it all. And you're not doing it all. They're working together. Your will and God's will is enabling. His grace and empowerment and your will is involved in these resolves for good. Don't think that you can passively sit back and say, God's going to have to do it. Let go and let God. Not going to happen. God doesn't want you to let go. He wants you to cling. He wants you to work. He wants you to study. He wants you to stir up. He wants you to pray. He wants you to move. Work. But the way we do that is in prayerful dependence. It's a work of faith. Look, he says, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Now, what's this calling? Second uh, Thessalonians or First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, He says the same thing to them here. We exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God's call is effectual. God's call is effectual. That means he's called them and they have responded 
to this call, and He has placed them into His kingdom. For God has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. He has made us partakers of His divine nature. God's called us into this. You are called into this kingdom, and you responded. This call is in this. So He says that He wants you to walk worthy of this calling. Now, worthy does not mean earned. You didn't earn the calling. It was all of grace. There was nothing in you or any, in me or anyone else that made God call you. We were all sinners, rebels against God. God calls us out of that. And so it says to walk worthy of this calling. That means fitting what's appropriate. What's appropriate of your life that goes with this call that God has called you to? And I think Colossians chapter 3 helps us with that, right? What's fitting for the believer? Colossians chapter 3 says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This is not fitting for you anymore. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Those things are not fitting for you anymore. They don't belong to the calling to where you've been called. Nor does wrath, no, it says, uh, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God's, dis, God's judgment is upon these things, and you once walked into them, but now you must put them all away. And then he's, more things. Anger is not fitting for the, for the worthy call. Anger is not. Malice is not. Slander is not. Gossip is not. Obscene talk is not fitting for you in this calling that God has called you to. Put it to death. But he's asking God to make you worthy of it. And he tells the same thing. He says in Ephesians, he says in Philippians, to walk worthy of this calling. He says, it's a command. Walk worthy. And then it's a prayer. Pray that God would fulfill every resolve for you of the calling and make you worthy of the calling where he's called you. These things are in conjunction with one another, but nonetheless, there's things that you need to be subtracting from your life. Verse 9, don't lie to one another. You know, do you realize this is written to a church? <laughs> this is written to a church. You know why they are writing this to a church? It's because these things are existing, are existing presently in this church. You understand that? And so it says, stop lying to one another. If there is lying among us, you know what God's word tells you to do? Stop. Stop lying to one another. Stop talking about each other. Stop obscene talk coming out your mouth. There's sexual immorality. If you're looking at pornography, God's word says, stop. Put it to death. It's not fitting for you. Stop that. 
Do not lie to one another, seeing you put off the old self with its practices. That's your former lifestyle. That's not your new life. That's not your identity. That's not who you are. Stop acting like that person you're not anymore. Stop. I think some of us just need to hear that. Stop. Put that to death. But we can't stop with just the stopping. There needs to be some replacing. And so there's some things to put off, put to death, and there's some things to put on. So evidence of God's grace in the midst of us is seen through what? These things. What things? Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. God's chosen you. You ever just sit back and think about that? God chose you. This world will reject you. The world does reject you. God chose you. You were God's chosen one. He moved towards you, called you by your name, and you came to him. He chose you. This is how we're to respond to him and to others, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. You know, God calls you holy and loved by him, and he says that we're to have compassion towards one another. You know the opposite of love? It's not hatred. You know what it is? Indifference. Just don't care. Do you care about your brother and sister? Compassionate hearts. Put on compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Don't you want these things living and vibrant in your life? Oh my word, do I want these things in my life. Patience. Like just press on me. Press on me and I won't explode. I'll just keep enduring joyfully. Don't you want to endure, not with white-knuckle aggression, but with joy in the Spirit of God? It says, press harder so that He might enable me to keep going and feel this joy that I'm walking the same road that my Savior walked. Joy. Patience. Bearing with one another. You know what that means? It means that some of us are going to do something to someone in here that's going to be you're going to have to bear with one another. We shouldn't be surprised by that, should we? That somebody's going to do something to you in this body of Christ that's going to, that you're going to have to forgive them. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We should expect that some of us are not growing as we should, and some of us have off days, and some of us get in our flesh, and we say things and do things that are not worthy of the calling that we're want they're not fitting for us and so he says forgive one another but how what should frame your mind when someone does something wrong against you as the lord has forgiven you and so when we marvel when we go back to second thessalonians when we marvel at jesus that we were the forgiven ones then it's not hard to forgive others if we'll marvel at how much that we have been forgiving, then it doesn't take a lot of effort to forgive. But if we never marvel at his forgiveness, 
then we'll refuse forgiveness and hold on to bitterness. Release. Put that to death. Put this on. You want some good resolves for good? I think Colossians 3 would be a good place to start, don't you? Resolve to put those off and resolve to put these things on. And that we would do this by faith. Is this God's will for our lives? Absolutely. Absolutely that we would walk in a way that is worthy of the calling where we've been called. Paul says that in Ephesians. He says, I beg you. Ephesians chapter 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I urge you to do this. I plead with you to walk the way that you should walk. Put this stuff off and put this stuff on. That's who you are. You are holy and loved by God. And these resolves are good. Now, the point of all this is so that, verse 12, so that you look good. Is that what it says? Well, you're shining like a new penny. Everybody loves you. You're the greatest thing since sliced bread. You're the humblest, kindest, compassionate person I know. I wish my husband was like you. I wish my wife was like you. Is that what he says? No, it says, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified. And so what that means is, is that the motive for why we want these things is not for us, but for him. And the reason some of the intentions that you have for resolutions in your future of 2019, the reason that they're not going to work, you know why? Because it's about you. It's not about him. And he will not share his glory with another. And so when you start making these things that you're going to try to pursue, don't make it about you. Make it about him. So that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you in him. Is that not a marvelous little phrase there? And you may be glorified in him? That means is he's transforming you into his image and that he's sharing with you glory. You start to look like him and being transformed from one image to the other image, right? This grace upon grace and this glory upon glory is being experienced by you as you're being transformed into that image. He's glorifying himself in you. Marvelous. And all of this, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. It's all fueled by grace. It's fueled. Grace is not only God's disposition and act towards you. It's also his enablement and power. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace was not frustrated in me. Grace is that enablement. Grace wants to work in your life. That's God. God is wanting to work in your life. He's wanting to work in it. So how is he going to do it? So, so Alan, you've told me all this stuff, and, and I agree with you. I need to do this. I need to, I need to live for God's glory. I need all these things in my life. I need to put this stuff away. I need to do all this. I need, I, yeah, I need to do it. How? Because that would be really harmful for me to sit here and, and paint all this picture to you and not tell you how to do it, right? How do you do it? I think it comes down to this word, faith. God 
fulfilling your desires and your works by faith. There's no other way. We make our plans. We plan. We plot. We schedule. We do all these things. But nonetheless, we have to do them by faith. By faith. We trust that God will enable us to do what He wants us to do by faith. So here's how it works. The faith is the trust that God will give me the grace that I need to do these things. Are you hearing me? Faith in Christ enablement. This is your blood-bought right. You understand that? Christ died for whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed, right? So that means that all those earthly things that are trying to destroy you, those, those, those debased desires that are warring against your soul, Christ says, whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. And so what that means is, is that sin will not have dominion over you. That's what it says in Romans chapter 6. So your blood-bought entitlement, inheritance, God's act upon you by His death, atoning death, and rebirth enables you not to be in dominion and sin. That means that you have the means to change. Some things, some of y'all are past resolutions because you say, I'm always going to be this way. I'm always going to be this way. And that's not faith. That's not trust in what God has said. God says, consider yourselves dead indeed into sin. And so the considering is the faith, the promise that God has freed us from that. It's faith in God's enablement to do these things. How do I do that? Well, you start evaluating those things and you start acting those things with a promise of God in mind and trust it. It's not a magic pill. There's no secret sauce. There's no six-week plan. There's trust in God. It sounds so simplistic, and it's the hardest thing we do every day. It's the hardest thing you and I do every day because lies are coming at us Lies upon lies are coming to you. Doubts and doubts and unbelief are always inundated by it. And God says, trust me. Believe my word. Trust me. We're not going forward unless we're believing that God is taking us forward. There will be signs. There will be signs to us as we look, you know, like the future, right? We're not going to see signs in the future, but we're going to see them as we walk backwards. Because we're not walking into this. We're walking trusting. We're not walking seeing. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so we're not walking seeing forward. We're walking seeing providence behind us. The evidence of God's working in them 
was seeing their maturity and their love for one another and their endurance. All those things happened in the what? Past. And Paul says it's evidence of God's work in you by you doing those things, and that's how we're going to see those things as we evaluate as we're walking this way. But we're walking this way trusting God is leading us. It's faith. It's trust. God is going to not let us down. Let none of those be ashamed that trust in you. So we have to resolve in our good and our plans that God will see it through. Trust in it. So what promises? Where are you struggling at, believer? Where are you struggling at? What promises has God made to you? You struggle with worry? You struggle with anxiety? What promises God made to you towards that? Will you trust that? Will you memorize that and meditate that and every time that dark, sinful, satanic attack happens to you that would cause you to frail and fret and worry, would you just like the sword of the Spirit draw that thing and let it go? Say, quote that, that verse, be anxious for nothing. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard my heart and mind. God, I'm trusting you right now to guard my heart and mind against this attack that would cause me to work. That's what we're after. Maybe you're sitting in here and you're like, I don't marvel at Jesus and I don't believe any of this judgment. I'm here because... I need something positive in my life. Without Christ, there is no change. Without Christ, there is no life. Maybe through the hearing of these things, that God is just. That one day, that we will make every wrong right when He reveals Himself. He transforms us into that image. Maybe you've seen the picture Christ in your mind, taking that worthy judgment that you have, and he laid it upon himself. And you, in your heart and mind, want to repent, trust Christ. There would be no greater way to start off this year than putting your faith and trust in Jesus. There'd be no greater way. I'm not promising you trouble-free comfort. I'm promising you the presence of God. The presence of God which is enough. So church, church, chosen, holy, beloved, loved by God, may God fulfill every resolve for good and work of faith for the greatness and the holiness of His name. Let's pray.